Welcome to Sports and Society, episode 52, and welcome back to the U.S., Count. Thanks, man. I'm in Murray, Kentucky. It's pretty cool that we have done a calendar year of podcasts. Well, yeah, I mean, really, this is like 60 weeks of this or something along those lines, which is, uh, I wouldn't have guessed when we started that we would have made it this long, but I'm, uh, I'm loving it. Yeah, I'm thankful for it. It's been fun. And I love the fact that you go from beautiful Ireland to Murray, which I find to be one of the most boring places in the entire country. <laughs> I actually just Googled uh, Chipotle because I wanted some Chipotle for lunch, and the nearest one is 140 miles away. <laughs> I, hope, I, ho- I really hope that you have a Moe's so that you can have some real cheap knockoff Chipotle for lunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, I like Murray all right. I, I I like it more than all right. I love it once I'm here. Um, it, it's it's its own kind of Kentucky identity place, and there are great spots here. Um, you got to do a little bit of work maybe to find them, but and the people here are always really friendly to us, so I like it here. It was um, really interesting. So for those of you that don't know, I have another podcast where I talk about what I actually do for a living, which is placemaking type stuff. But I wound up talking to some folks that do a lot of work in Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky recently. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. Uh, it was interesting. They, one of them does a lot of work in Walnut Hills in Cincinnati, uh, runs their mm-hmm. community development corporation. Um, yeah. But they both live in Bellevue, oh. which I thought was an interesting thing anyway. Um, but they talked about Bellevue embracing their Kentuckiness, which I thought was a really interesting uh, uh, thing to think about. I would, I'm going to need to listen. I would love to know how they're dealing with that and finding that. That's a cool question. I thought that, uh, yeah. So it's they were they're fascinating guys. Um, unfortunately, it's it's two white guys, but you know, what, whatever. That's us too. So, yep, here we are. <sighs> Most interesting people in the world. Psych. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's, I, this seems like a good segue for me into some of the other most interesting people in the world. Uh, again, sarcastically referring to the leaderboard at the U.S. Open right now. Yeah, I was going to segue into a rich, uh, privileged catholic private school white kid from kentucky being on top of the leaderboard in justin thomas <laughs> oh, well he and brian Harmon. um i don't mind justin thomas as much as i mind brian Harmon, but uh, neither of them captivates me and i really hope that Harmon doesn't finish this thing off yeah Harmon is um it's interesting. The golf world at large doesn't know too much about him. But if you look at his statistics and what he's been in the past, um, he's still pretty young. And he's been the definition of just the guy that hangs around, which you got to be exceptional to hang around on the PGA Tour. There are a lot of great golfers that cannot do that. Um, so a lot of folks on the inside are not surprised by what he's doing. Um, but the outside world is, and so I agree with you. What's interesting about that is the outside world's like, who's Brian Harmon? And then they get an answer to their question. They're like, Oh, that's not very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Whereas I think Justin Thomas uh, is probably a little bit more interesting story. Um, everyone's comparing him to Johnny Miller because hmm. uh, Johnny Miller was known for being as talented as Jack, uh, but not as consistent as Jack. Um, and I think that applies for Justin Thomas is that on a, on any given day, he's as talented or more talented than anybody else playing the game. Um, but he hasn't shown the consistency that those other like top five guys have shown. Well, I really think that, you know, if Harmon wins, it's going to be like a Zach Johnson moment. Like he may win another major, but he's never, um, it's not exciting. Um, Whereas um, Justin Thomas winning, I think could be like part of launching that narrative for him that leads to him potentially getting that number one player in the world status in a few years. Um, Yeah. So and it's an interesting question of this whole, like, there's certainly players like Sergio winning his first major. I, I really enjoy, but like the fact that Keegan Bradley and um, Webb Simpson have majors at this point, that's, uh, that's not compelling to me in the slightest, even though Keegan a little bit more, because at least he's an odd fellow in many ways, but. Right. Um, yeah. There's some intrigue with Keegan. There is not intrigue with Brian Harmon. No. And so I have to say I'll be pulling for Justin Thomas and uh, Ricky Fowler today. So, yeah, I'm definitely pulling for Ricky Fowler. Yeah, I, I've I'm I have grown to really appreciate Ricky Fowler and just he doesn't make any apologies for who he is and who he is seems to be a pretty nice guy. Um, obviously, like he lives entirely in a world that we would not, but. Um, I don't know. He just seems like a, a decent guy. I, I, I'm I'm happy to pull for Ricky Fowler today. Well, he, I agree, and I think it's also he's just different in the world that doesn't uh, allow for much difference. And I think that's something to be celebrated in some ways. Right. Um, I thought it was worth pointing out two other things about the U.S. Open. There's lots of interesting stories I think in this tournament, um, but. Roy McIlroy, Jason Day, and Dustin Johnson and Adam Scott all missing the cut, I feel like is pretty significant. Uh, One, just within the context of this tournament, that this course, I think it's playing great. Like, I love how this course is playing. Uh, I think the USGA would like to see the numbers not quite as low. Uh, And I think the course being wet has made it a little bit more possible, obviously, to go low. but it's a type of course that if you're off a little bit, even if there are wet conditions, like you're going to shoot a really high score. Um, I mean, Rory shot a 78 the first day uh, on a day when a 65 was out there. Is that what Fowler shot the first day, mm-hmm. I think? So a 65 was out there, and Rory McIlroy shot a 78, and Jason Day shot a 76, and Dustin Johnson shot like a 75. Like, uh, that, that's a cool course in my opinion. I actually like think the USGA has nailed it um, with this course. Um, but I also think it's significant that they missed the cut because I think it, in, I know Tiger, we exhaust Tiger Woods a lot in the sports world, but his streak of uh, not missing a cut at a major was something like 32 or something mm-hmm. like that. That's insane. Like, there are lots of insane stats about Tiger, but I always like bringing that one up. Um, that, that's, that's, that's remarkable. 
Um, I don't think any other golfer has a streak like that ever, um, which is why I think he's the greatest ever. I don't, uh, I don't think there's any doubting that at this point, um, yeah. even that I think there's more people playing golf and the fact that he was still being able to do that, um, uh, I think is pretty incredible. Yeah, I agree. Um, the third story also related to Tiger, I think, and all these guys is it's, it was reported. Um, it was a minor story uh, that golf now or not golf now golf channel did um, on Monday that Rory is dealing with back trouble. Ricky Fowler is dealing with back trouble. Dustin Johnson had to sit out because of back trouble. And apparently Justin Thomas is having minor back trouble. Hmm. <clears throat> um, or they're all like treating their back. It's not like they're like not able to walk or anything, but like the back is part of the game now that with these bombers to be a top five player, you got to be able to bomb all the guys we've mentioned can bomb the ball and then pair it with some good putting and you can be a top five player, but you have to wonder if it's, if it's really sustainable. Um, this is the first generation of people that have, uh, been swinging like these guys are swinging and so I think we'll find out in the next 10 to 15 years if it's going to be able to hold up and so what is the answer is it you know um, new uh, shorten the courses to de-incentivize long hitters or, or what is it I don't think that'll happen I just wonder if it'll change the scope of a playing career hmm I think you'll see guys still try and swing like this forever as long as the equipment and the courses are set up for it, um, which I think they will be because I think it sells. But, um, yeah, I, I wonder if we'll just see these guys not able to play into, like, their 60s like they can now. Hmm. Um, I will say, just on another note here, um, that Fox's coverage has again been horrendous. Um, it's so terrible. <laughs> like it's so terrible. The USGA has been just raked over the coals for choosing whatever that uh, abomination was that I actually loved two years ago. Um, yeah. And then this stupid penalty thing from last year. Um, but th perhaps the bigger thing for me is they went with Fox and it's just, ruined the watchability of these tournaments to some degree yeah it's so bad uh the only credit i will give them so if you're watching fox on mute is actually somewhat pleasant because they make such uh expansive use of the shot tracker stuff and i do appreciate <laughs> that i enjoy that like they carry a shot tracker with each group um, and set it up in the fairway before every shot um I can't imagine how expensive and how much work that is, but uh, I appreciate it. I do like seeing the flight of the ball, so I can appreciate that. But yeah, everything else is really, really bad. Well, well before we move on off of golf, I just wanted to put this uh, out there because we were talking about Tiger. And this is the stat that blows me away, and I had to look it up real quick. But um, he set the all-time PGA Tour record for consecutive cuts made at 142. Um, that lasted from 1998 into 2005. Um, the next longest streak by any player um, is in, considered to be in the 20s, which is just absurd. 
<laughs> yeah, that, I think that is the most incredible golf statistic there is. Yeah, I, with the nature of the game, especially. I mean, it's just so hard to be consistent in golf. Um, and even just getting like a bad break, like a bad bounce and making a quadruple bogey makes a lot of people miss cuts. Mm-hmm. Like really great players miss cuts because of like one errant shot. So you think of how many shots uh, go into those rounds that he played. It's incredible. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's move on to basketball. Are you uh, celebrating the Warriors triumph? Uh No. I'm not. Um, I wanted Cleveland to win. I think. Um, I don't. I'm not. In you, I'm not lamenting it though, because I like the Warriors too. Obviously, um, I mean they play basketball the way it should be played. And it seems like uh, everybody but Draymond would be like pretty fun to hang out with, which is how I gauge a lot of my <laughs> sports love. Um, Steve Kerr, I love. Um, so, and I, I think it's good for the NBA that they exist right now. I don't know if they win like five in a row, if that'll be good for the NBA. And we're going to talk more about that. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm happy about it. I'm not, I'm not celebrating it, but I'm, it, it was, it was a great series. I thought, even though it was um, four to one final, but still, I thought it was great. Where are you on it? Um, I'm happy to see. Um the Warriors come back and win it this year. I I don't think there's a more likable person in the professional sports world than Steve Kerr. Um, And I just love uh, everything kind of about the way this team carries themselves Um, Mm -hmm. that I might argue that the bigger risk to the NBA is not from them winning five championships in a row. Uh, it's from the fact that their internal chemistry seems to be really easy and natural. And I don't, that lack of drama would probably be worse for the NBA than them actually just being dominant on the court. Hmm. Um, LeBron is always going to have stories. I think you're going to have to manufacture stuff about the Warriors to some degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Draymond seems to be the only. Uh, story progenitor, one that's capable of starting a story or creating a story by saying or doing something. He seems to be really good about like uh, how he interacts with the rest of his teammates. Like they talk about, you know, him getting on people and he does, but um, the dynamics seem to embrace that to some degree um, Mm -hmm. in a way that it's not as grating as it would be if it were somebody else. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I've been interested to read. I love off-season NBA hypothetical articles. Like I, I geek out on them; they're really fun. Uh, can you think of a hypothetical that would get you excited involving LeBron moving to another team? Oh yeah, I mean they're not ever going to happen, but uh, LeBron to the Sixers would be a fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Supposedly, there's slight rumblings about LeBron to the Lakers. I, I've heard these. Um, Jalen, I think, has been promoting this. Yeah, uh, I don't see it happening. Um, just, I would love that. That would get me so excited. <laughs> I would geek out on that. That would be really fun for me. 
uh, it's just it's so hard. Like I, if I were going to pick a team, like I, I would love to see him decide that instead of going to the big market teams, he's going to spend one year, like for the next five years, he's going to spend one year apiece for all the small market teams. So like <laughs> he goes to Minnesota for a year, and he goes to uh, Milwaukee for a year, um, and then I just think that would be so much fun. Gosh, that would be amazing. Uh, can you now? This you got me going on this now. I'm like Memphis. If LeBron went to Memphis, that would be such an interesting thing. I feel like he could fit really well with what Memphis has been doing. So I was talking to someone the other day about uh, him at the Suns. Oh, with like seven 19 year olds and LeBron. <laughs> like that would be fun to watch him just like screaming at him all the time, coaching him and being all dad like, and then being like, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. I, so what, go ahead. What do you think the warriors are going to do about their white house visit? I couldn't care much less, to be honest. I like, if it becomes a thing, I would look forward to it, but I'm not going to wait for at this point um our esteemed president has upset so many traditions i just uh if he thinks they're going to say no they're not going to get invited and that right uh, is a fascinating phenomenon to think about but it also um there's so many more important things to think about at this point in time yeah so everyone lobby your congressman about not cutting cdbg funds please thank you <laughs> yeah um. um i will so it's interesting i i enjoyed the finals um i know a lot of people probably wish they went on longer but like seeing lebron uh, i think this time around i really appreciated his superman act more than i have in years past like, yeah. i still don't aesthetically watch enjoy watching him play but um there's just uh there's a force of will and a desire to it and skill that you have to appreciate. Um, yep. And so like, I'm all ready to like kind of move into the next phase of LeBron is getting towards the end and we just need to appreciate him while we have him. Uh, right. And then he goes and makes some of these stupid responses to Draymond. Um, and I just, it makes it so hard for me to get on the bandwagon with him. I think I agree with both points. One being that, um, you know, a lot of folks wrote that LeBron is three and six in the finals. Uh, I loved Damian Lillard's quip in response. Some reporter asked him about it. And Damian was like, a lot of people were zero for zero. Like, I think points to the magnificence of like being in nine finals. That's incredible. Um, I also agreed with him when he was like, I don't have anything to regret. I gave it my all every minute I was out there. I agree mm -hmm. with him. Like mm -hmm. He really does. I don't think many people play as hard as he does. Um, or even like in their prep and everything. You know, all elements of the game, I believe him that he's as dedicated as anybody. Um, and yeah, the Draymond stuff, apparently they're buddies kind of, and like it's all in good fun, but it's still like, what do y'all, I mean, come on. <laughs> 
this isn't that cool. Well, no, and even if it's in good fun, like there's a, um, like if there's a tone deafness to it that, and like yeah, yesterday he, he was talking about like, well, there are these other, I didn't create the super team. You know, you look at those Lakers that had Malone and Peyton and I'm like, yeah, that was when Malone and Peyton were terrible. Um, yeah. Like the only other team I would point to would be the Celtics in the modern era. Uh, and they did that through trades and not through free agency, all deciding to go to the same teams. So I, you know, there's an argument to be made and his tone deafness on it. I think uh, no one's judging him on this. He's only judging himself. And I think that that uh, it contributes to my feeling that LeBron takes himself over seriously. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, I would agree with that. He puts up hard lines on stuff on mm-hmm. things that are actually much more complex. Um, but yeah, like I said last time we talked, though, I, I just have grace for someone that has to be in the media so often. But he brings a lot of it on himself. Hey, that's, uh, you know, I hear that, um, but that's what he wants. He wants to be in the media all the time. Like his goal was to be a global icon, and he knows to do that. He has to be in the media constantly. Right. Um, I'm always going to appreciate someone like Durant more who – seems to just want to play the game and not be the icon as much. Yeah. Um, I think even more like Kawhi Leonard. Yeah. He wants nothing to do with it. There was, um, I don't remember who I heard this story from. And one of the NBA podcasts I listened to was talking about during the lockout season, you know, all of these um, leagues that have these semi-professional guys in it that would play in the summertime. All of a sudden LeBron and KD and people were showing up for those. Mm -hmm. Um, KD was going to play at Rucker Park and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the guy was just talking about how LeBron and KD both showed up for one game that they were at um, and how LeBron had like an aura where no one went around him, whereas KD spent like an hour signing autographs and taking pictures with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's just – uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that you, uh, you know, you, there's an unspoken way you carry yourself that I think plays a large role in these things. And it's why LeBron will probably never get the benefit of the doubt from people like me. So, right. And that video of KD dropping like five three pointers in a row at Rucker Park is probably my favorite sports video of all time. I mean, uh, it doesn't beat uh, Usain Bolt, like, stopping running with 20 meters left in the 100 meters, but, you know, it's close. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have uh, we still got lots to get to, but let's uh, – can we try and do some uh, uh, quick-fire things to get through some of the rest of this stuff? Yes. What did you make of the French Open? Um, first, I'm so tired of Rafael Nadal. I know 10 is amazing, but it makes the French Open not worth watching on the men's side for me. Um, and on the women's side, like great joy for Ostapenko. Like she deserved to win that. But I just, in the end, the feeling I walk away with was sadness for Halep uh, in many ways. You? Uh, that women's final was amazing. I was captivated that was so fun to watch um i actually enjoyed that 
Serena wasn't involved uh, mm-hmm. for similar reasons that it was um, somewhat uh, a, a scripted men's side. Um, so, yeah, I thought the women's side was a blast. I, I loved watching the women's matches. And there were a lot of great matches on the men's side, but the final um, seemed pretty easy to predict. But um, I have to admit, I, I, I think it's cool that he's won 10. It may not be fun, but I think it's cool. Um, I, I, I can mean, agree I, with that. Yeah. Um, and you have to just <laughs> – bow down to it to some extent and say, wow, that, that is incredible. That, that is amazing. Um, winning 10 majors at, at one major, it, it, it's, it's incredible. I don't, it's one of those things that it's really easy now to say, like, I don't think that'll ever happen again. I have to say that I wonder how much of this, um, like there doesn't seem to be a next group of tennis players, stars coming along. And I wonder what that means for tennis. Yep. Except for Zverev, my boy. He's gonna he's the next one. All right. All right. Well, I hope that there are four of them because otherwise it's just gonna be just as boring as it has been. <laughs> yeah. There will be. I mean I think there always is. I think this tennis is uh interesting in that there seems to be chapters uh with tennis. Um and I think this chapter is just about over. I mean Better being done, and it definitely looks like Djokovic is almost finished. Um, and I think Murray has a few years left, and Nadal probably has a few years left. So I think we're looking at within five years, those four will be out. Well, it's uh, the women's final, I have to say, that was just incredible. If you weren't a tennis fan when you started watching that, you should have been one by the end, I think. Um, yeah. It was just compelling, and again, though I have to say I've been a Halep fan for a while, and it's uh, it was just I it felt like she missed her chance, and she'll never get another one in some ways. But fingers crossed yeah. for. Her. Yeah, I think she cracked a little bit in that second set. I think you could you could see the switch over. I think you could. Yeah, it's, and I think that's part of what resonates for me about her is that she gets in her head too much, and. Um, that's what uh, happened there, I think, is that she doubted everything and all of a sudden that mental game went away. And yep. you can't – that's what – that's also what made Djokovic so amazing uh, to watch in my mind because he would be, bro- you know, mentally broken like seven times in the same match and keep coming back to take it <laughs> right. again and again and again. Right. Yeah, I think Nadal has some of that too. Yeah. All right, um, McGregor versus Mayweather. Thoughts? Uh, I think it's a sideshow. I think it's uh, all about money. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. And if there's not a knockout, it will be – I'll be surprised if there's not a knockout, even though Mayweather's not a knockout fighter. Um, but I agree with some of the pundits that say – because early in Mayweather's career, I actually watched a lot of boxing. And not that I'm an expert on boxing, but he would fight some of the best fighters in the world and he would outpunch them like six to one, um, which is an incredible ratio in boxing. Um, like, I don't know if McGregor's going to land a punch on him. Uh, he's known as the best fighter at dodging, like, ever. And he's going against someone that's never boxed professionally. 
Like, uh, I'm, I will be fascinated to see how it plays out as much as I don't like boxing anymore. Um, so I think this excites me on a couple of levels. One being, um, I think it uh, brings in some serious trouble for the MMA, the fact that in order to get an interesting bout at this point, they have to go outside of the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think um, Mayweather is going to be 40, which I think raises some really fascinating questions there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I'm with you that like same here in that early on, I used to watch a fair bit of uh, Mayweather's fighting and it, he's just so uh, I think I would compare it to some way to the why I appreciate the Warriors over the Cavs and that the Warriors just they're technically so perfect and then the Cavs are like brutal force beat you down and so like Mayweather beating Pacquiao was very much that same kind of thing and Mayweather is just technically so freaking phenomenal even if he doesn't knock people out and it's boring uh, he's so good at what he does um yeah, he's he's probably the most boring champion ever. Um, yeah, and for someone that talks so much and is so flashy outside the ring, in the ring, it's quite boring. They're not exciting fights at all. Uh, which credit to him, he figured out what it took and he did it for a long time. And let me just but be yeah. clear: I am not a boxing fan any longer. I have the same issues with it that I do with football, and I will not be watching the fight. Although I am intrigued to follow the 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 aftermath of it. Yep, exactly. Same here. Um, all right, uh, Patino, uh, Louisville falling apart at the seams yet? Uh it seems like they are. Um, I thought a five-game suspension and vacating wins uh, from 2013, which does involve their national championship, I thought that was a slap on the wrist, especially when it came to light that this wasn't a one-off incident, that this was happening for years. Um, And yes, if you are the CEO of an organization, you sign your name on a line and when you do it makes you responsible for everything that happens in that program and so yes he maybe didn't know the nature of what happened at these parties but he had to know that things were happening or that you know he would the recruits would leave his office at 6 p.m and he would hand them off to a group of people like how could you not have the judgment to say like what are you all going to do tonight like what are your plans like text me or call me at 11 and let me know that you're back in the dorm or something like that. Like that's not hard to do. Um, And so Patino coming out and saying that this in this ruling by the NCAA is over the top and uh, they're going to appeal it and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're just proving what I already thought that you're out of touch and tone deaf on this and have no idea what's really going on with who and what you are in the world. Um, which kind of upsets me. Like I, I want the university of Louisville to be uh, around that it's good for Kentucky. I think they're good for the sport. Um, I think they're a good kind of pushback against UK. Um, I, it, I don't like this, um, but I think he's an idiot. I mean, it's kind of irrelevant in some ways because uh, the esteemed Mr. Bevan is going to lose U of L its accreditation anyway, and then you won't have to worry about this. Right. Yeah, U of L is a mess right now. 
an absolute <laughs> mess. Which again is a shame. It's like this is a public university in our state that does a whole lot of good. Like they're like these are two ego maniac white men affecting like tens of thousands of alumni and affecting a lot of people that just go to work every day at this university and make it what it is. And um, I live right by the university and they're really involved in my community. They're off, they offer all these amazing free events and uh, they're involved in the public school system to a large extent in Louisville. Like they're really good for the state. And these two psychos are like such a blemish on that university. <laughs> um, well, uh, let's uh, wrap off our news section with uh, your thoughts on Pulisic and the hype train that's continuing to grow around him. Yeah, I think he is I think he is great. I think he is the best player we have seen maybe ever. I, I'm hesitant on that. Um partly because by calling him the best American player ever isn't saying a lot in the world <laughs> stage of soccer. No, um, I mean the competition is Claudio Reyna, is that <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like Michael Braley and Claudio Reyna are probably in Landon Donovan, which were all they were all great too. Um, but on the world stage, it's, it still doesn't, it's not that significant. And so I kind of wish we were just kind of mum about it. I wish we were like, yeah, we got it. We got a good player. We're coming along. We're doing well. As opposed to like, is Pulisic the savior of United States soccer? Well, what does that mean? <laughs> if the answer is yes, what have you accomplished? Like not a whole lot. So I kind of just wish it wasn't so hyperbolic, um, but to get people to read a soccer story, you got to have a headline like that, I think. I have to say that I think um, it doesn't bother me that much because I think it's always going to come. And yeah. I think that um, you're only going to be the one when you're able to deal with that. And so Messi and Ronaldo, I think, have even more pressure in their own countries. Um. And they've been able to handle that and become the players that they are. And so if Pulisic is going to be that guy, he's going to have to deal with this. And I think that Freddie Adu was never going to be that guy. And yeah. uh, this just made – maybe it contributed to that, but also maybe he just was never going to be that guy. Yeah. Um, and he just seems like uh, he does – it's hard not to talk about him because he's so – far ahead of everybody else on the pitch uh, right. in some ways. So, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It doesn't uh, – for me, I think it's a good thing in terms of it, it builds excitement around the men's national team, which I think is a good thing at this point in time. Yeah, that's probably true. Although Ronaldo might be joining Messi in tax fraud. Well, apparently already has, yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> apparently tax fraud is the thing to do in Spain. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what do you think of sixty-minute matches? I it's an abomination. Um, I try not to take hard stances on things, but that would really put me off of soccer. So, what's the story here? So, essentially, there's a body that I had never heard of, but that is made up of. Um, some of the biggest, like I think it's FIFA and then like four leagues um, are part of it. And they 
are coming together to discuss doing 60-minute matches in order to cut down on time-wasting and make the game more appealing. And I have to say that I don't think that's a good idea at all. A few players have come out in support of it. Yeah, well, this is uh, this is not something that I think players should be in charge of. I'm sorry, <laughs> but um, I think it's you know, like um, in cycling, the cyclists are always saying we need to cut down on this and cut down on that, and I'm but you know, we have to have races that are exciting uh, or else no one cares. Um, And so I think that the 90 minute match is so ingrained. Uh, If you want to do 60 minute matches, whatever, go, go do your thing, but don't change the normal league structure. Go do it in some, in some weird international tournament that people go to. Make it, make it, make there a sixty-minute soccer league, and if that is hugely successful, then maybe you go to that. But um, I think cricket has been wildly successful from not changing their core format, but also introducing new things that in the future may take over, but they're not exclusive to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good take on it. The idea of if they set up like a a sixty-minute exhibition tournament or something, and like see how it went. Uh, I mean, like, I'm almost more intrigued to do it like hyper levels, like in the way that um, rugby teams have done rugby sevens, um, where you have these real short halves. Um, Like, I would be intrigued to see like a 15 minute league. That for me would be a more compelling story than a 60 minute league, like Mm -hmm. something that forces these guys to kind of be frantic and go after the win. Right. Well, I think that's the argument, the idea that so much time is lost in, in a match that if the whistle blew every time there was a stoppage in play, that we would actually get to see more soccer um, in those 60 minutes versus what we see in 90. Uh, yeah. I, part of the beauty for soccer for me is the way, uh, is the flow of the game. And I think anything that interferes with that uh, will take away from enjoyment of the game in some level. But don't people diving take away from the flow? Or like uh, a keeper holding onto the ball for 20 seconds or uh, standing over a free kick for 10 minutes? Um, I don't No, I don't think so. I guess there's a rhythm to it. Um, and you can like you can see when it goes beyond what's normal, but there's already yeah. protocols in place to kind of deal with that. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just, uh, I think you just kind of embrace that and that's the way the game is played. Um, right. I do uh, like I the saw- rule suggestion for um, only captains can talk to the referees. Oh, I, I don't think anybody should be able to talk to the referees. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's obnoxious how annoying they get. All right, well, you want to tell me what's going on with this cricket match that's happening right now? Yeah, so it's it's pretty interesting for lots of reasons, but um, Pakistan and India are playing in the finals of the Champions Trophy today. 
And the last time Pakistan and India played, um, 400 million people watched it. Hmm. And um, there are some many headlines, especially coming out of India, that a billion people are going to watch this match, uh, hmm. which most people say it's just a headline. Like there's, there's no way a billion people are going to watch this match. However, it does, like most of the projections are coming in at like 500 million. And that is just televisions carrying the game. So you could argue that in like a bar or a public space where the match is on that, you know, there could be 50 people watching one television, which is going to jack it up some more. Uh, And then what they cannot seem to find out how to gauge is how many people are watching illegally, uh, which is known in Southeast Asia and Europe and Africa that a lot of people are watching illegal streams of matches. Um, And so in that way, like some argue that there's a legitimate argument for a billion people watching this match. But um, if uh, 500 million watch it, that's one in 20 people on earth are watching this match, Hmm. which is pretty insane to think about. and then I think from our American perspective, it's, it's really interesting. So if they do go over 500 million, that's 500 million people all being part of something today intentionally. And I can't imagine many people in the United States are going to watch this match that are born in the United States. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's massive um, um, populations of Pakistanis and Indians that are in the United States watching the match, but, um, I doubt many American-born folks are tuning into the match this morning. Um, well, it, uh, I'm just looking right now at the up-to-the-minute status, um, mm-hmm. and it appears that we are missing a moment in history right now. Oh, really? Uh, Pakistan went out in 338 for four, which is, I mean, holy crap, that's, that's a big score to put out there. Um, yeah. We're now in over 14. Um, and India is 55 for five. Uh, oh, wow. And Dhoni just went down. Um, I'll so, be done. Yeah. That's, that's 62 uh, for five. Holy smokes. That's crazy. So, anyway, the, this, is a, this is a big thing for Pakistan happening right now, I do believe. Yeah. It's going to be uh, some fun parties up in that neck of the woods. Yeah, that country's going to go ballistic. Now, let me, uh, do you think it would have been, you know, there's already this incredibly compelling thing to see Pakistan and India going at it. Um, Was there a small part of you that was hoping that Bangladesh would pull off the upset over India? Absolutely. That would have been, that would have been more important, I think, than, um this match which i mean this match i am commenting on the size of the viewership but these two countries have major weapons pointed at each other every minute of every day and the amount of racism that exists between these two countries is known to be like some of the worst racism in the world um so this is a big deal for that but um yes i kind of wish um um they could have pulled it out, but I also did love watching England get absolutely demolished. And it was just, it was ugly. <laughs> yeah. 
it was similar to this. What's happening? If you're yeah. sixty-two for five, that's it's very similar scoring. But well, what about cycling? Well, so everything at this point is kind of poised towards the run-up to the Tour de France, which starts July first. Um, it's really interesting at this point. Froome is looking vulnerable. This will be the first time he's going to go into a Tour de France not having won a stage race uh, already in the season. Um, and he got beaten in the time trial by some names that are significant uh, and the criterium de Dauphiné that just happened. So that's – we're looking po- poised to have potentially a very interesting Tour de France. And uh, it's raising these questions, which is always the big questions with the Tour de France, is that Sky's team is so strong. Um, just how much are they going to be able to control the race and set tempo all the time? Uh, and make it a boring race. Uh, so that's kind of, uh, we're at this moment of indecision where nobody quite knows what's going to happen next. Um, but it's also, this is, I find this time of year potentially very interesting because it's also right before the Tour de France that all of, or almost all of the national championship races happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that you'll have all of these, so it's essentially not going to be any races of significance between now and July 1st, except for these national championships, which a lot of people don't participate in. But I just love this, the fact that national champions get to wear their country's flag on their jerseys. And um, and then you can like just have won your, your championship jersey and then get to go wear it immediately in the Tour de France. I think that's just such a cool... Uh, you know, I don't know what their feelings are, but I would imagine it being a very cool phenomenon. Are they one-day races? Yep, they're all one-day races. And there's uh, there's a time trial and a road race for every country. They do it both in one day? No, it's usually it's like four days that they'll do like the women's and the men's and then they've got juniors and everything in these countries as well. So That's cool. Do they do laps or do they do a full out road race? So it depends everywhere. Usually when you're doing a, something like this, you'll either do laps um, or you'll have a like a big, you'll do like 100Ks out in the middle of nowhere and then come back and do five laps in the same place at the end. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, the, the U.S., we have traditionally not, it's not been our best rider that's won the national championship. And so it's frequently been a guy on a second tier team, which I've wondered how that plays into U S cycling and that we don't um, like, what if, what if we had seen Lance win those champ, those tour de France's with a U.S. flag on his back for the first couple of stages. Right. Um, but it's like tra- these guys that have won it recently are just not people that, we even have a name for uh, most right. of the time. That's cool, though. It is. And I'll just say as well that uh, Peter Sagan is looking as freaking strong as ever. He's been in the Tour de Suisse and won two stages, both of them easily getting away from everybody else that's in the field. Uh, that includes the people that would be his biggest competitors for the green jersey at, at the Tour de France. So it's uh, everybody's getting amped up for the – the big deal. He's my favorite writer by far. Oh, I, I don't, I don't think it could be anybody else. Like he, um, he just lights up a race in no way nobody else can. Yeah. Uh, 
and it can be any kind of race. Like he, he can, uh, he won the tour of California winning on a mountaintop. So, I mean, he literally can do whatever he wants to do. Yeah. And off the bike, he's, he's so fun too. Yeah. Slovakian people, man, they're just a hoot. Yeah. His, his (laughs) YouTube vids of, um, actually him on a mountain bike are really fun. Mm-hmm. Of him just like bumming around these European cities and doing crazy stuff. They're really good. Well, good deal. I suppose we should get to our, our main topic for the week. Let's do it. What are we talking about? All right, so this week uh, the topic is kind of the idea of parity versus the idea of dominance, and I think this has been brought to mind by the Warriors and Cavs and the necessary questions it's asked after pretty terrible playoffs in the NBA of what what is best for the sports world. Right. Um, my, my first comment is a question to you, and I'll answer it too maybe, but um... – Why do you think this is a significant question? And then um, do you think like sports fandom at large is paying attention to this the way like the leagues are paying attention to it? No. To the second part, no, I don't think fandom is paying attention to it as much. I think that that's – um, if I've learned anything over the past few years, it's that most people know way less than we think that they know um, mm-hmm. as a general rule. And so I think that uh, generally speaking, um, it, most people don't, it doesn't matter to. So really this is for the, the hardcore folks. Um, and then the question in some ways then becomes what role is, are those folks in the broader sports world? And then what role, does money have in all of this? Cause I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Which is I what think, the reason that's an interesting question for me, I think is because it points to exactly what you're saying. Like the, there's like a few different worlds that exist within sports culture. One being like the ownership advertising marketing world that is constantly thinking about a bottom line. Um, and then when they come in contact with different sports or different ways in which leagues are structured and when they have to kind of like police or govern or negotiate a sport based on things that are to some extent out of their control and that mainly being this what is so compelling about sports is we don't know what's going to happen so they're trying to constantly like um orchestrate a situation in which we don't know what's going to happen, but we, we kind of had a handle on making this stage appear or something like that. And then there's also the element of the casual fan. And so the casual fan wants the best storyline, or at least like from the perspective of the owners and the marketing and people that are stakeholders that when a casual fan is drawn in, that means more money. And so what kind of storylines and what kind of things bring in the casual fan? So in that way, talking about dominance versus parity, if we had like a purely socialist system where everything's the same, <laughs> you're probably ruling out the casual fan, but you and I are going to watch. Um, but there probably aren't many of us, maybe. Um, 
not that we want total parody all the time, but still, I, I think like the way we watch sports and the way the hardcore fans watch sports is like we watch for these little nuances um, and little things are compelling to us that maybe aren't compelling to a broader base. Um, so it just makes it an interesting, significant question in that way for me. See, and I, I think I might push back and say that I think in that world where there's ultimate parody, there's actually you're expanding your viewership. Um, and I think that part of that is you're maybe expanding the people that are hardcore fans like ourselves, but also um, I think there's a huge geographic basis to this. And I think we saw this with Nashville getting activated about the Predators in this Stanley Cup finals. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I think that's so good for hockey compared to, say, the the Bruins uh, going up against the Penguins. I don't know if that's possible. I'm not that good with hockey. But, um, like, these fan bases that have already been activated. Um, but to go into a new space, so I think that, say, Memphis making the finals um, is better for long-term NBA fandom than for these same teams to win over and over, even though I think they're compelling storylines from those that, that the league wants. Ideally, I think the league would pick the Lakers and the Knicks to be in the finals every year playing against a different third market team every year. Um, but I don't like, this is not something that I know the numbers on. That's just kind of my intuitive sense of what would be best. Well, um, one Forbes article I looked at on this um, from a professor at Northwestern that studies this stuff and writes about it, uh, he would agree with you that these leagues overall are very okay with dominant franchises, and they're okay with dominant franchises because they sell well. But it seems like the best case scenario for these leagues is obviously to not completely lose out with the small markets. Uh, And so kind of setting up a scenario wherein there are like maybe two or three or four dominant franchises with somewhat of a fair shot for a small market team to make it there. And so the, you know, the Cinderella story or the David and Goliath story or um, a Voldemort type organization that the small guy can get after, which I think is exactly what the NHL playoffs were this year. Um, and so, yeah, if it's possible for Memphis to have like a just standout year where everything clicks for them and they get to the finals against a powerhouse, like that's the ideal scenario. Um, and so in that way, you could maybe argue that the NBA is a little out of balance right now. But what this Forbes article was pointing out is that dominant franchises actually sell well. Um, but you have to wonder if that's like sustainable or if that'll last forever. Um, well, I, yeah, so, so then I wonder um, how much the problem for the NBA this year was the overall playoffs and not just that final that it was, I think the NBA wanted to see the Warriors and the Cavs at it again. Mm-hmm. But I think that if they had their way, they would have seen uh, the Spurs push um, the Warriors to six or seven. Um, and then probably also to see somebody, to see the Raptors push the Cavs to six or seven. Right. Um, I, I think that, 
that's, um, you know, I think that, I guess to make it even more clear, I think the league probably even loves the fact that the West is much better than the East um, and that they like that LeBron has this easy road back to the finals, um, but that there's also a competitive side on the other side that can like foster that kind of growing energy in those places. Right. Yeah, the other examples that this article pointed to were, um, well, Bundesliga. I mean, Bayern Munich has ruled now for like 15 years. Uh, and then in England, you've got um, only four teams, uh, except for the anomaly of last year, in like the last 20 years, have won the title. And then in La Liga, it's nearly impossible. I mean, there's been little flashes in the last 20 years, but I mean, the top of the tables are obviously Barcelona and Real. So um, it seems that those leagues are, are they're not making it uh, impossible for that to happen. Um, they're allowing that to some extent. Well, and that's just, it brings up this really interesting question of why the U.S. has gone for the um, salary cap when these other countries have not. Um, right. And raises those interesting questions that, you know, perhaps the Europeans are more okay with unfairness than we are on some level. Yeah, and that's what is that contradiction, maybe. Maybe contradiction is too strong of a word, but I think it is a contradiction to some extent because uh, (laughs) revenue sharing, salary cap, things like that would come with – a conviction like an antitrust conviction <laughs> in like u.s business and so these institutions in professional sports in america are arguably or in the like our collective imagination are considered like the most american thing there is like you know if you try hard and work hard and build your way up and you make good decisions and do all the right stuff then you'll be a champion one day uh where in reality in the NFL, which is arguably the most like traditionally American league in a lot of mindsets, they seek parity almost on a harder line than any other league um, with how they do it. I mean, the sheer idea of that, if you lose and you lose uh, worse than everyone else, you get the first pick in the next year's draft. Mm-hmm. So you get rewarded for being horrible, which is like, Nowhere in the American consciousness is that a thing. Uh, but in our professional leagues, that's exactly how it works. Um, so I, I think that's pretty fascinating. It is, especially because you think about how directly opposite that is in the soccer world. And you think about um, like the Champions League, the reason that everybody wants to make Champions League, they probably don't even want to play the matches, but they want that. Uh, 20 million or more or whatever it is that they get from being in champions league every year. Yep. Yeah. I think they share 150 million in revenue sharing. Mm. Um, yeah. Which is pretty crazy, but yeah, the idea of revenue sharing, I think salary caps obviously are a huge part of it, but even more than that, the idea that um, MLB has these massive revenue sharing, um, deals and so now you see these small market teams signing billion dollar television contracts it's like what how is that possible um, and it's because there's rules in place that are designed to bring about parity in the league 
Um, it's a powerful force in American sports. I think it's, uh, this raises an interesting question for me thinking about um, college athletics. Yeah. Um, it's like Texas at this point has a massive behemoth cable deal of some kind. I don't even understand exactly how it works, but they have their own network and all this stuff, which I'm assuming they're making just tons of money off of. Mm-hmm. And yet there are all kinds of rules in place that are supposed to limit their competitive advantage. Um, mm-hmm. And I just really wonder like what, how that plays into things. Um, right. Cause it's, it's not like Texas has been setting the world on fire. Um, right. But they still have these resources that nobody else has at this point. Right. Yeah. And I was thinking about this and I don't have much to back up and it's kind of a new thought for me, but I'm realizing that I think um, the way I imagine the overall narrative of something like college football is that for a long time, well, up until very recently, so post-World War II, within the NCAA, it was like the wild, wild west. (laughs) And so whoever emerged in the late 80s and early 90s when television um, started to produce so much money for the NCAA and for these universities – that now it's like a badge of honor maybe, or it is a very American Hmm. story that like, yeah, our university made it through the wild, wild West. And here we are on top now. And that's like part of the devotion of why people are seemingly okay with there only being what, maybe uh, 15 to 20 college football programs that are in that elite status. Um, And so in a country of 350 division one universities and really there only being like 20 that can compete every year, um, we're seemingly okay with it. We're not asking the NCAA to govern in such a way that Alcorn state's going to make it to the college football playoff, Mm -hmm. you know? Do you, um, are there leagues that you find more interesting because there's more parity in them? Um, I think Major League Baseball does pretty well with it, and I appreciate that about Major League Baseball. Um, that it, It's similar to like your hockey example, that yes, those big market teams have an unfair advantage. Um, however, it is possible for a young team like uh, – Tampa Bay Devil Rays under Tommy Madden, um, you know, to, to have a spark in a bunch of young group of guys. The Houston Astros this year uh, are doing it with a bunch of guys that are on rookie contracts. Um, and, yes, those teams get dissolved and snatched up uh, and watered down by the big market teams eventually, but it is possible for a small market team to challenge those big, huge clubs. And so in that way, I always appreciate that about Major League Baseball. Um, I don't care about the NFL. Um, so maybe that, and I, I did this when you brought up this topic, the first thing that comes to my mind all the time, and I think I've mentioned this several times before, but um, in the late nineties, when I was a kid and watching NASCAR on Friday before the Saturday race, um, the NASCAR would choose like 12 drivers and they would give them all the exact same car. And they would race like 20, 25 laps or something like that. And I remember being like, 
10 years old and thinking that was the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> Just like this, this is racing. Give everybody the exact same car, the exact same rules. Just no space for um, technical advantage. And let's see who the best driver is. Like that's perfect in my mind. Um, so I, I, that always comes to my mind. I'm just like how much of a, my 10, 12 year old brain loved that. And that's so interesting as well, because of course, formula one is the exact opposite. Exactly. Uh, it's all about the car you have. Um, yeah. And so again, there's this weird U S versus European dynamic and opposite of what we would expect. And, I don't know. Very interesting. I I do want to take a moment and ask, like you mentioned baseball and hockey as being these leagues that are good at promoting parity. And there's a part of me that wonders if that's the leagues that's doing a good job of that or if the sport themselves itself makes that more likely. Um, mm -hmm. I think that part of me for that is that these are sports where there's more room for uncertainty perhaps than there isn't anything else, and it's much harder – to hold form in these sports and I think it is anywhere else. Hmm. Um, like I think, you know, I think of Bryce Harper and Albert Pujols, for instance, you know, two of the greatest hitters I think we'll see in major league baseball history. Um, and Pujols like carried that for five years and then hasn't been the same guy since. Mm -hmm. And Harper had a year or two and then lost it and then has had another year or two. You, know, you see the same thing with Teixeira when he went to the Yankees. You know, it's and mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm really intrigued by this idea that um, uh, that it's much harder in some ways to construct a team that will consistently be well do well at baseball uh, mm -hmm. versus some of the other sports, just because there's so much uh, uncertainty in the game itself. I think that's what makes players like Clayton Kershaw so amazing, is that we see that the Cubs rotation that was so phenomenal last year, it's just not mm -hmm. the same this year, right? Um, and you can't. It's really hard to define why that's the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question, and it leads me to think about the nature of prospects in baseball, hmm. and how there are so many kids playing baseball, and there are so many kids that enter the draft, and on paper they look really similar uh, to each other. It, it's hard to pinpoint who the next Major League Baseball star is going to be for the most part. Um, there, are, there are exceptions, of course. So like Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, they were exceptions. But for like 99% of future Major League Baseball players, they all look really similar. And so being able to figure out who's going to be able to bat 290 versus who's going to bat 240 is almost impossible to tell until they get a thousand at bats in major leagues. Um, and so part of it, that would point to like, yeah, the nature of the sport brings about a little bit of parity because it's so hard to tell who's going to be able to figure out what it takes mentally and physically to do well for 162 game season. Um, and that's what scouts are always looking for. Like there are tons of guys out there that can hit home runs. Um, but can you figure out how to do it to different pitchers in different ballparks for 15 years? And if you can, you're going to get a $200 million contract. But uh, if you can't, you're just going to kind of disappear into the world of double A AA and triple A baseball. This is interesting because I wonder, um, 
what that brings to mind for me is the fact that every interaction in baseball has at least two participants. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and those participants change all the time. And so like on a basketball court, you know, you've got Steph going up against Damian Lillard over and over and over again. And yet what Steph is doing is um, not as much dictated by what Lillard is doing. Right. And yet in baseball, like everything you're doing is a duet in some ways. Right. Um, and the, the person you're doing that duet with is changing constantly. Yep. Well, and that's what um, – this is MLB's defense of their rookie contracts. So they've taken heat from the players union over the years that these rookie contracts are um, unjust. And MLB's argument back is that like they have all these statistics of these players that have great rookie years and even their second year, they'll be great. But then once there's enough data for pitchers to look Mm -hmm. at, it's that person becomes obsolete very quickly. And if they can't make that second adjustment, uh, then they dissipate. And so Bryce Harper is the perfect example of his first two years. He's amazing. Pitchers figured him out. And now he has seemingly figured out how to get on base again. Um, And that's who gets the big contract, whoever figures out how to do that. Um, Well, it's interesting to me. There is a – I have to say that I have been captivated by the Yankees this year. They've made me want to pay attention to baseball again. mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, I'm really intrigued to see what will happen with Aaron Judge in the long term. Because uh, there's been some speculation already that pitchers haven't been able to figure out how to pitch to him yet because he seems to be able to hit wherever they put the ball. Um, right. And I'll be intrigued to see what happens with that in the next few years. Because, damn, the guy looks good right now. Yeah. Yeah, he's a perfect example of that. If he if pitchers figure him out next year, he could become pretty normal. I also loved uh, he made a catch where he laid out in the outfield and it was like a tree falling and I felt like pain when I saw it happening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's a big dude. Um, But like, do you think that I'm intrigued by soccer as well because I think that they're like the nature of what we've seen with soccer is that there are so many of those intricacies that play into the soccer team as well. And I mean, we certainly Mm -hmm. saw that when everything coming together last year for Leicester and then none of it working this year. Right. Uh, and I wonder, like, I wonder if there's actually more parity in soccer than we think, but because the funding streams are so divergent that the same teams wind up at the top, but the fact that we haven't had teams consistently go back to back tells me that there's actually, that's what makes it okay on some level that the same teams are up there. Right. Um, I think that of the fact that like Real and Barcelona essentially want to come back every year with 90% of the same team. And yet uh, we consistently see them flip-flopping at the top uh, of which right. one is playing better. And I think that that uh, is part of why the leagues are perhaps okay to let that happen. I don't, not so right. much with the Bundesliga, but um, the other leagues seem to be that way. Yeah, and I think it just probably generates a whole lot of revenue to have that Goliath at the top and a chance for a new David to come and play um, in those stadiums. I think that's really compelling to a lot of people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you want to do our thing? Wrap it up? Let's do it. Um, you want me to go first or you go first this time? Uh, you can go first. All right. That way I can start us off positive and you can kill us here. I like it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of amazing that we have gotten this far into this series without really giving our full appreciation to how TV has changed sports. And today I want to be positive about that. And so I'll say I'm immensely thankful for how accessible television has made sports. I think that I think I would be much less a sports fan without the prevalence of sports programming on the weekends when I was growing up. I have a really fond memories of watching football all day on Saturdays and watching ACC basketball at noon on Saturdays. These tremendous athletes and beautiful plays were brought right into our home. It also represented a shared experience with thousands of other fans. The television really was at the crux of what made me the fan that I am. This raises really interesting questions for me about how the internet and YouTube in particular will change what fandom means for the next generation. What does it mean that we have access to a ton of highlights and footage all the time, or that there's a wealth of discourse available online to participate in? I can only imagine what fandom will look like in the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think too. So when I was reading about this Pakistan India match and potential billion viewers or whatever. So the only time on earth that a billion people would watch the same thing was the Beijing Olympic opening opening ceremony. Hmm. And I often use this um, conceptual lens tactic with my students is I ask them to imagine what's happening here on earth from like an alien species perspective. <laughs> so like if we're being watched by extraterrestrials and they like don't really understand what we're up to or they don't speak English or the common language of humanity. And so like how fascinating of a thought that is if someone's been watching us for 250,000 years that during the opening ceremony in Beijing, they would have been like, Oh, that's interesting. Look at that. Like, <laughs> you know, 200 years ago, the average human alive didn't venture more than 10 miles from their house. And they would have only known about 80 to 100 people in their lifetime. And yet 200 years later, uh, over a billion people can come together to do a, a common thing. Um, that's pretty fascinating to think about. Yeah. I'm intrigued. Have you, um, with your kids that you work with, have you seen, um, how do they uh, engage with sports? Is it through watching full events or, or what? That's a good question. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I'm not sure how they're watching it. Um, it's not something I talk to them about, but um, yeah, I don't know, to be honest. I think they're just watching television. I think they're watching events still. Yeah. Well, um, I, I expect you to ask that question in your class then so we can have some data to go back to here. We'll do it. <laughs> All right, um, dude, hit me up. Yeah. 
So I watched two documentaries on Conor McGregor this week to try and get a handle on who and what he is. It was fascinating to see where he comes from, what his relationships are like, how he views and defines himself, how he projects a certain version of masculinity, just as it was fascinating to see all the other complexities of a freakishly dedicated person's livelihood. It left me wanting good things for him and his people. This was contrasted with the scenes from his fights. As one that does not watch UFC, I was sick to my stomach. I was also struck by how noticeable of a physical reaction I had to the fight scenes. I was also struck by how unnerving the panning shots of the fans are. They are in a complete frenzy. And so I was maybe even a bit more depressed about UFC than I have been in the past. I think that I think that we need more voices speaking out against it. With ESPN adopting it into their daily stream, it seems that we are being collectively beckoned to just accept it. Obviously, the same is true for football and other cultural violence in general, but there is something more to UFC. Our collective willingness to say that this is okay is what is even more unnerving than watching men and women try and immobilize and paralyze another human. The pursuit for McGregor was more about getting out of tough circumstances than it was perfecting an athletic art form. There's one quote he gives towards the end where he expresses his desire for kids in Ireland to get involved with MMA. He hesitated mid-quote as if to recall the last time he was knocked out and tore his ACL in a fight and revised his comment to say something about the benefit of training hard at a sport even if you don't decide to fight. I couldn't agree more with him on this, but I think that I think that we, are, we as a sports culture are part of something horrific and I don't hear enough people saying as much. Amen. Yeah. It's, it's hard. Just, it's frustrating that like when I like scroll scroll through Instagram or Twitter following sports outlets, I have to see knockouts. Like I, I want to follow ESPN on Instagram. Like I want to badly, but like every third post is someone getting kicked in the face. I'm like, what the heck? How is this okay? So this raises, like, I think, you know, you and I are, are boycotting football at this point. We're not watching the games. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to matter to the NFL. Um, and, like, we can talk about the UFC needing to go away all at once. And maybe, you know, a couple of our viewers, I don't know any of our viewers that would be watching it anyway. Uh, if you would, please let us know. And uh, we'd love to talk to you about that, I think. Um but I'm uh, like, what, like, other than unfollowing ESPN, what can you do that's actually going to change the needle on any of these things? What, if enough of us did what, what would, how would that change UFC? Right. Like, is it, I think, is it, I think there needs to be a warning. That, and I think you should have to click on a button to say you're willing to watch a knockout. Hmm. that's like my most simple response is like I did not want to see that and you didn't ask me if I wanted to see that or not like you should have warned me that I was going to watch someone get kicked in the face like you owe that to me as a fellow human being I wonder if there's um, the potential what we seem to be seeing that has the most effect now is going after the advertisers Um, Mm -hmm. and so I wonder if there's some way we could uh, convince ESPN's advertisers not to advertise during UFC segments or something along those lines. Right. I don't know. Yeah. 
don't be on the wrong side of history, people. <laughs> or at least be humble. Well, we're not very good at that. We can't tell other people to do that, can we? <laughs> we have a freaking uh, podcast pontificating about different sports things, but <laughs> well, we try. Maybe we just fail. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, cool. All right. Well, um, as we wrap up today, I'll just give an update here and say that. India is now, after 25 overs, 134 for six. They did have a moment where they had a 23-run over. Um, and the guy, one of the guys now at bat uh, had the fastest 50 uh, in the finals of a UC, ICC one-day international tournament on 32 balls. Uh, still looks highly unlikely, though. Yeah. But come back next week, and we will – fill you in on the what happens from this and uh it's exciting to see uh something good happening for pakistan i have to say go pakistan all right man all have right. a good week go all right see you man.